Welcome to the Testimony Podcast, people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. And welcome to episode 30 of the Testimony Podcast. My guest for this episode is Tim Boniface. Tim is an ordained priest and a chaplain at Girton College, Cambridge. He's also a professional jazz musician, and you'll hear some of his music in this episode. And as part of our conversation, we'll talk about the fundamental role that music has played in his life. If you're a listener to my other podcast for creative writers, the Creative Writers Tool Belt, it's Tim's music that you hear at the start of that podcast. Tim is a fascinating character and has some real insights on the challenge of combining a career in music with a vocation to the priesthood. This is his story. So Tim, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. Perhaps we could start by you telling us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing, your your background. Sure. So I grew up in Surrey in a little place called Ashted. Um, which is near Epsom, where the, where the races are. We moved there when I was three, and I grew up there with my parents and my sister um, until I moved away for university and all those kind mm-hmm. of things. Um, I grew up with my dad's family in Sussex, which meant um, fortnightly trips to the football at Brighton in the winter and to uh, the cricket at Hove in the summer, which was actually really, really fundamental. It was, it was, a, it was a great... Um, building a relationship with my dad actually um just to you know to do that hour-long journey each time and yeah. so Sussex yeah. has, has always been a, a really um a really kind of key key place for me and when I go down there now which I do to get my saxophones repaired because the, the best place in the UK to get your saxophones <laughs> repaired is in is in Worthing um bizarrely um when I do that I always feel kind of like part of my feet are planted there if that's not too strange a metaphor so yeah. that was that was very much part of things, and then my mum's family up in up in Sheffield, um, and uh, so that was a bit further away. But we used to go there, um, particularly around Easter time. And um, as as far as growing in faith goes, my mum's parents were as crucial for me as any as our church at, at home. Um, so my mum's dad, um, who died about uh let's think about seven years ago now just a year before Mm. i was ordained and he was a remarkable kind of classic polymath type so he was the um a chemist he was i think um part of the team that developed fiberglass uh he was a chemist in birmingham and at princeton university he then was an became an educationalist and amongst other things um was part of rolling out the gmvq program and set up was the founding principal of Sheffield Polytechnic University. But he was also a priest in the Church of England, a, a curate in a local parish and wow. a canon at Sheffield Cathedral. And between singing in a local church choir at, at home uh, in very traditional services, going to youth group kind of things in more informal setups, and journeying through the rhythm of the church year with my grandparents in Sheffield, that became, I think, my um, my rhythm of Christianity. Those kind of strands weaving together. The metaphors all over the place, by the way. This is <laughs> fine. Um, so um, that was, 
I yes, I suppose the 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 woven context in which my own faith developed mm. in a childhood that was very happy. Um, Ashted was a was a you know relatively small place, but but with enough going on. Um, and then the the other kind of crucial strand for me in growing up was working out that the way music made sense to me was perhaps a little bit unusual. Um, uh, Do you want to explain that to us a little bit? What yeah. You mean by that? So I suppose, I think I was about four when I could pick out tunes on the piano that I'd heard, mm. you know, and work out how to play them. And, and and this was again at my grandparents' house in Sheffield. We didn't have a piano at, at home. Um, my grandparents bought me a keyboard when I was, I can't remember the exact age, but, you know, th this was trips to my grandparents' house and I'd pick things out on the piano. And um, the the shape of musical melody and rhythm just made sense to me. It made sense that like when you hear a word, you can say it back. If you hear a tune, you can play it back. Yes. And gradually discover that actually that's not the case for everybody. Um, and so I really experienced this um, ability to kind of have a conversation with music in a way that was perhaps a little bit unusual. And, and also um, just how much I loved listening to it became really apparent, all mm. sorts of things. Mm -hmm. mm. And when I was, um, so there's all sorts of music going on, singing in the church choir and picking out tunes and things that I liked. But then when I was 11, my dad took me to a jazz concert in Epsom. And that was like the flinging open of, um, of doors to this astonishing space of this music that just completely grabbed me. Um, and that was it. Um, so, we, you know, we bought tapes then. Um, uh, this was like the interim, you know, vinyl was, was kind of, teetering on its um on its little dropout it's back in now of course um, and cds weren't quite there so we bought tapes and i would i st I'd started learning the saxophone i'd learned some other things but sax was what was really doing it um and we put on the tapes and i'd play along with them just join in the musical conversation wow um, and that like jazz musicians uh, do i guess like jazz musicians do it was like hearing a language that i kind of worked out how to pick up it just yes. worked it made sense and so that was also a massive part of, of actually how I understood myself as a child. So then playing jazz, loving jazz, and finding somehow that um, the sort of life that I felt in playing jazz felt quite close to the kind of thing that made sense in church, the kind of life that people associated with, with God. Um, it, 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 they didn't seem like worlds apart to me. Um, can you could you elaborate on that slightly for us? Because sure. I'm I'm trying to think how that might work, and maybe people listening to this are thinking how might that work? So how might how might jazz music and especially jazz align with the the a life of faith and and engagement? Yeah, okay. I mean. Um, Maybe, maybe we can do that in this childhood growing up thing first, and sure. then perhaps a little bit later we can talk about it a bit, you know, a bit yeah, more broadly. Yeah, yeah. But you I think actually, in the context of yeah. the age you're at and how. Yeah. So, know. so in in that in that early stage, um, I mean, I've done as a as a kind of theologian and 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 teacher a bit, and uh, you know, and, and composer. I've I've tried to tease out a bit more of the relationship between what it is to be a jazz musician and a Christian and 
looked a bit into theology and jazz, all this kind of thing. But fundamentally, I think what I felt as a young person was that um, playing music had its roots in the same kind of deep place in me that was the place that that faith seemed to belong for me and for other people. Mm. So it, it it wasn't like there was a musical bit of me and a, a, and a believing in God part of me. And almost per, perhaps when I heard other people speak about their experiences as Christians, I would think, oh, that you're talking about that kind of place that seems to come alive for me when I when I play. Um, so rather than thinking, oh, you know, um, that's weird. I would think, oh, well, that makes sense, you know, because mm. um, if a fundamental understanding of God is the one who gives, and if music is a way, I think, of accessing something about the fact that we are given to, you know, we have this extraordinarily rich universe in which something like music is possible, um, then it, it just it just kind of made sense. And it made sense sometimes if... Um, particularly as a teenager, you know, if, if I was sort of thinking about praying, maybe I'd, I'd play. Um, yeah. That became a very natural thing to do. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it was to do the, the, the link for me between being a musician and being a Christian was to do with the deep place. And also the fact that as a, as a, as a musician, I felt like I could express things that felt prayerful, I suppose. Sometimes, you know, I, I think it's Paul, doesn't it? So Paul talks about sometimes words you know i think he's talking about perhaps speaking in tongues or something like that he says you know words when words can't express it so you have to say it in some other way and maybe yeah yeah words can't express what what music can sometimes yes i think um and if if i'm if i'm thinking of the same bit of paul that you are then it's all it's to do with um the the spirit too the the animating life of god yes kind of speaks in in groans too too deep for words um, yes, and so that sense that that there's something about human life that language might not be the best thing to use to get to. That's a terrible sentence grammatically, but the idea that there's something about us that we might want to express, and words aren't the best way to do that, um, is um, is certainly a, something where music can can get involved. Yeah. You know, yes. I think I think for a lot of us as, as musicians, particularly jazz musicians, but I'm sure other musicians, certainly other classical musicians with whom I've I've worked, there there really is a sense of um, you have to you have to get beyond something you can explain. That, that there's some sort of expressing that's that's going on that is different to and perhaps sometimes deeper than what we can do with our language was something that became quite real for me quite mm. early on. I mm. think. Mm. It's interesting that, therefore, you didn't see music in competition with faith or or, or them being. Distinct. That's that's really interesting, actually, and I, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't for for quite a long time, and then and then I did from somewhere, and I and I don't know where. It, well, I think it came from a few different places actually, and and we'd have to talk for a very long time to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> But then, yeah, there definitely was a period where I felt a pressure to decide whether I was going to be a musician or to take the theology ministry kind of path. So I went to university to study music, but I never did. Mm. I studied theology instead, which is what I felt I wanted to do. 
um, so I played a lot of music, but studied theology mm. and absolutely mm. loved it. And and mm. then kind of felt drawn into ministry stuff. I and mean, we're well beyond childhood now. But but yes, there there wasn't competition at first. But then, well, for for well over a decade, in fact, pro- yeah, at least at least ten years of feeling like there was a kind of struggle, and actually that led to some really difficult, quite dark places. Um, uh, and a feeling that I sort of maybe had to suppress something, particularly where I skirted around the edges of some Christian traditions that were very much like, well, you know, you need to choose God. You shouldn't be, you know, you won't, you, sh- you shouldn't be loving sort of all these other things. You, you know, your 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 love should be for for God, and you know, yes. there's other things yeah. that are really taking yeah. your passion. Then you need to be careful yeah. of those. Which, to be quite frank, is. Um, theologically bonkers because love isn't a zero sum game anyway um uh, believe it or not um and um and also i think quite can be quite partially damaging um so yeah there was a real struggle there and where i am now chaplain at girton college part time and jazz musician and teacher part time it's taken a long time to get to the place of one being able to do that practically, but also to accept that that's who who I am, and to be doing this is is just marvelous. I feel incredibly alive in it, um, and I'm very mm. grateful to people who've kind of encouraged me to stick with that sense of dual vocation. I guess. I mean, I think this is quite an interesting area. So, some people listening to our conversation will uh, be people of faith, but they also have other things that they love. And that may be their profession, um, hobby, and interest. But what it doesn't—it kind of doesn't matter what it is. And I wonder whether perhaps, especially artistic endeavors in the broadest sense. So for musicians, painters, writers, dancers, actors, whatever, there's—it is really—it's really an issue to have to wrestle with this kind of. Maybe it's like the the artistic expression as an idolatrous thing is wrong, but in the service of God or as an expression of life or as received as a gift is somehow right. I mean, how, how did this work for you? How have you managed to, to work this out so far? I think partly some quite obvious kind of dual projects, if you like. So I've got two jazz albums, which take portions of the scriptures and um, for example, you know, we're in January. So, uh, my Christmas one, which we've j- just kind of played a bit a couple of months ago, that takes different lines of speech from the characters in the Christmas story and uses those as a springboard for some improvisation uh, without words. And the idea is that's a way for people into the biblical text in a different kind of way. And we mm. play that in churches and, mm. and you know, um, that's so that's quite direct that's like oh well you know here's how i can use my music but um but i think more fundamental is um the idea that god isn't in competition with other stuff because god isn't stuff right <laughs> so we don't it's not like you know you can't put two plant pots in the same space okay because one of them's taking up space and if you try and put the other one there you have to move the other one away right you can't you can't have two things occupying exactly the same space if they're if they're the same kind of stuff but yeah. but god god can be where that plant pot is too um 
because there's there's not a competition in that sense. And whilst there is a really rich and important Christian tradition of, um, I guess, sacrifice of, um, I'd say it carefully because there's some bonkers ways in which it's happened, of course, but what we might call asceticism, so choices we make which might feel like they're bringing discomfort in the immediate level, you know, think of giving up stuff in Lent, whatever. Yeah. So yes, yeah. that it's, it, it, it's really important that to not to lose um, or devalue this sense of making choices away from our immediate gratification towards perhaps uh, a deeper relationship with or comfort with God, however you put it. Um, but at the same time, the idea that if I experience a deep, passion for something and that's not directly either being in church or saying my prayers or reading, or reading my bible or being an evangelist the idea that i somehow have to get put push that passion away and get it you know get it out through the cat flap or whatever that can be one incredibly damaging for us as people because we start to connect the experience of love for something with something negative Hmm. Uh, and it's also can lead to a very kind of anemic Christian expression because then we lose people expressing joy, which is yeah. a deeply kind yeah. of life filled thing anyway. So, you know, I have met with other musicians at times and talked quite a lot about this sense sometimes within some traditions that we need to kind of curb how much we love this, but that can be very, 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 very strange. Um, and theologically, it is, you know, this isn't a kind of dive in theology podcast all the time. So, um, but there are enough good people who think through Christian faith well enough and deep enough to remind us that desire for God is often something we find our way to through our desire in other things. Um, mm. And I, I really do think that the idea that artistic passion is something that should be kept in check for, for Christians can lead to really unhelpful messaging um, and quite a lot of loss, actually. Um, that's another conversation. Yeah. Same. So there is a way through this, isn't there? I suppose there is a way to not worship your art. In, in, in instead of God, but also to yeah. fully enjoy it, fully express it, fully engage with it. Yeah. And also, and you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's the fact that it, it isn't just about me and, and God, because the great commandment is, is God and neighbor. So yes. art is for, yes. art is for the neighbor too. Right. And, yes, and um, so most artists are, saying doing playing what they are because they believe something is saying worth you know is worth saying or doing or yeah. playing um for us as a whole whether their community you know or i mean all sorts of things this is a you know there's a big world of theology and, and art here but um but yes that's another thing to say well i can deeply love this it can be deeply fulfilling for me and something that I think is worth contributing to the world at large. And those two aren't mutually exclusive. No, 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 not at all. So, so when you get it right, you are almost, it's almost like you're loving your neighbor as yourself by producing the art that you should produce and sharing it. One would hope so. Yeah. yeah. And we don't get it right all the time, but you know, no, that's not no, a no. good reason to stop. 
Yeah, that's not a reason to stop. That's 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 a reason to keep working. It's a lifetime project, isn't it? it? Is, Trying to get it stuff is, right. It is a lifetime project. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Tim, let's go back to when you were a child, and you've already alluded a little bit to um, faith experiences that you may have had then. But perhaps you can tell us a bit about how your faith developed when you were a child, how that worked for you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. If I can talk one about the sort of broader context, which I think I have all, already, which is growing up in quite a diverse parish, you know, where there was Book of Common Prayer, what would now be common worship, but was um, alternative service book <laughs> in the early 90s, um, singing in the choir, you know, robed up, and then also more informal services. It was a it was very diverse parish, very exciting in that, that regard. Um, so I grew up in that context, and then also the, the context of particularly my my mum's family where the rhythms of the church and my grandfather's ministry were really fundamental and very normal so that was all going on the kind of broader christian context and language and and habits were part of how i understood myself um or how i guess i oriented life a little bit but i do remember one one particularly sort of notable moment where i think faith in god became quite quite personal not in a not as a kind of conversion way but just like the opening of a window a bit more you mm. know a bit wider mm. we went on holiday to Pembrokeshire we, we, we're, we're creatures of habit the Bonifaces and we used <laughs> to go on holiday to, to the same place in Pembrokeshire I think we went well my parents still go put it like that and we started going when I was well I think before I was born so you know and it was it was it, yeah it was and, and in fact I'm taking my family back there in the summer so you know it's this we're talking so you know but I certainly went for 20 years in a row when I was uh, when I was growing up um uh and we used to go on walks along the Pembrokeshire cliff path um around St David's which is a very beautiful place I can still remember looking down and seeing all the different colours of um, of plant on on the ground. It was a really gorgeous day, very sunny, and I started to talk out loud to say thank you for it. Um, and I, I I was intentionally talking to God, and I was intentionally saying thank you, thank you for this, and thank you for that, and isn't this beautiful? And I think almost sort of an aren't you wonderful? And isn't this wonderful? And this is beautiful. Um, and I would have been about six or seven, I think, around this time. Yeah, yeah. And so, well, maybe a bit older, actually, if I was walking along a cliff path um, unaccompanied. So, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple of years beyond. But um, that was, uh, it was an experience of an involuntary, out loud expression of gratitude mm. that mm. I, 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 I wasn't thinking, I wonder who I'm saying this to. I was thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm saying this to the God who is the God that my, my grandparents and my parents and the people at church talk about. This is that God, and this is somehow what seems to fit. And a lot of people, when they talk about beginning prayer, talk about starting in, in gratitude or it being mm. a good element of, of, of mm, prayer. Definitely, and um, yeah. The idea that that came kind of involuntarily, it was just something I felt I wanted to do and wanted to say, was part of me feeling like I actually owned some kind of faith myself. Like, oh yeah, this is this is mine because because nobody told me to say this, and it's not, and uh, you know, um, it's not written here. And uh, I'm a big fan of liturgy, by the way. But you know, there was no kind sure. of there was no liturgical setup. This was just I kind of have to do this, and and that I think 
became a kind of habit. It was a, a, a habit of wanting to express off my own back something to God. And that started with, with gratitude and then through my growing up became all the other things too. And I used to, a lot of times in my kind of late, early and late teens would, would light a candle in the dark in my bedroom and just say stuff. Mm. So, so this was, this was not a practice that you had been specifically guided into in a, no in the sense that it's, it's words written in a book that you're following. It's just something, something rose up within you and mm. you practiced it and it became yeah, habitual. It did. it did. And I suppose what I'm saying is it's kind of, I mean, all these things, you know, we, we're, when we do something like this, they're in, involuntary and also they're embedded within a particular culture and set of, you know, um, terms and all this kind of thing. Mm. So I suppose what I'm saying is I felt like the sort of thing that I was doing off my own back, myself in my own way in choosing the words, also belonged within that bigger yes tradition. Yes. Um, and it felt like my own expression of it. Now, mm. there's something really interesting there with regard to playing jazz, but that's for another time. <laughs> you know. um, well, I could see, kind of see that, that, how, where that analogy is going yeah yeah it's and, kind of improvisation that, that within a tradition of, you know <clears throat> in fact there's lots of things in life i suppose that you could point to and particularly in art which are an an acknowledgement of the boundaries or the yeah. form or the rules yeah. Let's, rules is perhaps too strong a word within which one expresses oneself yeah definitely so, yeah so that but but yes I think you're onto something with in that it was in involuntary in that it would have been perfectly possible for me to keep, you know, going to church, doing what we did in church with, without that. But fundamental for me was, oh, this is mine. This is what it means yeah. for me to be yeah. within this tradition. Yeah. And yeah. that's always been really important. Perhaps we can move on from that and, and continue in that in that with that sort of theme um, and talk a little bit about your experiences as person of faith and a musician and a composer yeah. and a jazz jazz musician can you talk a little bit around that and how that's developed and worked out for you <laughs> yes that's a big that's a big question um about three years ago after a particularly difficult period actually which i'll probably allude to again a little bit later mm -hmm. um i had lunch with the man martin seeley who'd been principal of Westcott House, where I trained to be ordained. He's now Bishop of St. Edmundsbury in Ipswich. And is a, is a, I had experienced him as a really, as a real gift, actually. Um, somebody who was able to really give his attention in a way that felt holy and deep. Mm -hmm. um, and I was kind of scrabbling around, wondering what came after being a curate. So in the Church of England, you serve as a curate, you know, for three to four years, and, and then you get another job. And and, and I had sort of realised that um, as much as actually I'd had a really great curacy in a parish that I really liked, I really, really liked it. Um, and the people I worked with were absolutely fabulous, and I miss them a lot, actually. I think we we'd clocked my my uh, the the vicar of the parish where I'd been and, and and I had said a few times you know that going to be a vicar of a parish didn't seem to be the right kind of shape, and I sat with Martin in this restaurant in London you know um, having gone over this quite sort of difficult experience I'd been I'd been having and and saying you know I I don't. I don't really feel like the normal shape of things fits for me because of the music thing and whatever. And and he looked at me and he said, 
we've all known that for ages. You know, what, what, why? And, and it, so the idea that ministry and faith and jazz overlap in me is something that has just been near the surface that other people have probably recognised a lot earlier than I, than I have. Um, I suppose what it means for me in terms of being both of these things is the acceptance that part of what it is for me to, to give is to do so as a preacher and, 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 and pastor, you know, and, and leader of worship, carer for a community in terms of the college chapel and the college more, more broadly. Um, but also that um, what it means for me to give is, is to do so as a musician a, um, and to, to give the forms of kind of melody and rhythm and, and harmony that I discover as I journey through the jazz tradition and work out what it is for me to express within that tradition myself. And as I alluded to before, sometimes that works out in quite practical ways. We've got these couple of albums which are based on the Christian scriptures and often that's playing to give people a, a space or a time within which they can turn their mind to God or to the scriptures or, or even just allow who they are to become a bit more present to them. Um, often that means playing in, in church services. You know, at St. Paul, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll play something during, before or after communion, just as a, as a, as a, I guess, offering for people to use to give themselves the time with God that they, mm. that they need. Um, and, and also I just think that, the world of jazz is is the most fabulously rich location for being a human being. I mean, you've got so you've got this incredible kind of practice of of collective improvisation. You've got a a really alive tradition. I mean, the sound of it's wonderful, and also you've got a, a tradition and an art form that's really rooted in the pursuit of justice, mm -hmm. and that did that, that pursued that kind of justice in a way that was very, very open and experimental um, and quite quite vulnerable. So I think mm. jazz in itself mm. has got incredible spiritual depth. It doesn't take much scratching of the surface to discover the incredibly complex ways in which jazz is interwoven with religious faith of, of, of various traditions, mm. um, not only musically in the way that quite a lot of the jazz music that was being played has quite a lot of harmonic and rhythmic roots in the gospel churches, but also in the way that many jazz musicians, I mean, the classic example is, is John Coltrane, but others too, um, Mary Lou Williams, for example. Jazz for them became the way they were kind of searching for God um, yes. and trying yeah. to express something of God. And people used to say of Coltrane, don't listen to what he plays, listen to what he's searching for, which is an amazing thing. So I think that the final thing I'd want to say to answer that very big question is jazz is also a place where I feel I can be part of that very human search for and an expression of life with God, that kind of close mystery that is God, you know, where words run out to come back to what we said before. Yeah. Have you got, uh, I wonder if you've got a, a piece that you can play for us that might yeah. illustrate that. Oh, and, illustrate that. And feel that, free to yeah. give it a little bit of context either at the beginning or the end. Oh, but, right. Yeah. yeah. Is there something, is there something you can share with us so that we can, perhaps hear it in the music the things i suppose let me do two things if if that's sure. all right what i'd like to do is is i've i've got a, a, a piano here um which i guess you can hear 
to go back to my the childhood thing we were talking about of jazz yes. really kind of feeling like it was a language I was part of. Um, yeah. That happens at a few stages. Um, the concert my dad took me to was um, kind of classic British traditional trad revival jazz, it was called, from from the 50s onwards. So it was it was the, the Chris Barber band. And this was this sort of big sound that I'd never heard, this kind of interweaving sort of Dixieland sort of style. And then I started to broaden out too. And I remember my, my, my grandfather buying me... Um, a CD of the great pianist Oscar Peterson. And the first time I heard Oscar Peterson, it was like the spectrum of colour just expanded. Uh, it was like seeing the world in a whole new set of set of colours. And um, and his kind of, his style, which is, you know, really rooted in the overlap of gospel and, and blues tradition, mm. is has been really, really fundamental for me. So um, um, maybe I'll play you a bit in in his in his kind of style, the style that really that really grabbed yeah, me. Yeah, and then I'll, so we don't uh, fall foul of anything. <laughs> so we don't fall foul of anything because you know um, artists deserve their rights. Um, and then um, and then I will play. Uh, I'll then stop, and then I'll play you a little snippet of something of mine that I that I wrote for one of my sure. suites. Um, that would be great. Um, um, right. for you all um uh, <laughs> joyful so blues a joyful a joyful blues and yeah so this i i remember um hearing him do this for the first time i heard that and it was like gosh that's just the language i need to speak you know it's just yeah uh, there's this amazing amazing kind of sound all this you know when when you hear that for the first time you think, gosh what what is that you know I no idea that 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 kind of combination of sound and rhythm existed in the universe it's just this expansion and that feels like a really spiritual thing for me when that happens when i hear music that's new it's like oh here's here's a gift wow it's like a sort of yeah. expansion of the chest you know um <laughs> first time i heard that I, I, again it was it was i guess gratitude to god it was like, wow that's that's kind of there so I then, you know, started to compose a bit of stuff myself. And within that kind of bluesy gospel tradition, um, I can play you a, a very short bit of a movement of one of my jazz suites called The Eight Words, which is based on the eight things that Jesus says in the story of the Passion of, of John. So from his arrest to his execution. And um, we, I took each of his words and then wrote a kind of melody to each one to, I guess, express something about what I felt when I heard the words, but also to explore them. And then we use the basic themes that I write as a way of 
improvising and exploring the text a little bit more. So this one is the words, um, my kingdom is not of this world. And it is it kind of draws on the sort of social justice song for peace sound um, in that there's a promise of, a, of, a, of another way. You know, Jesus promises the coming of another way, which we see only in part now, but we will see in, in, in whole. And I think there's ways that we can try and point to that through, through music. So this was my little chance to do it. It's a very basic melody, um, but uh, hopefully you'll like it. There's there's so much kind of unspoken language in those pieces, isn't there? There's there's mm. kind of emotion and mood and and something being said which we which are not is not of words, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you for sharing those with us. I want to move on to uh, just pick up on something that you said a little bit earlier, which is an aspect of of life that maybe wasn't particularly easy for you. Mm. Mm. Um, so how did that work? What what happened with that? What can you share with us about that and how, how God engaged and encountered with you in that? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, all our stories are, are so complicated. I think there are, there was probably points in my life where I thought my story wouldn't be. And then when we discover that ours are, it kind of can floor us a bit. And some of us, it floors more than others. And um, a particularly difficult stage for me um, culminated in quite a lot of time off work, actually, um, and a period where prayer and connection with God felt very, very far away. Mm. And playing music was one of the only things that I could do, but it, 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 the depth of it felt really hard to get to. It was, it was very, very hard. And I'm grateful to a lot of people who were extremely supportive through it. As that period drew to a well, not to a close, really, but as the next stage of it developed, you know, because we're, we're always on this kind of journey. And there's things about myself that I learned in that that um, that haven't haven't gone away. You know, they're, they're still there, but um, perhaps uh, they don't have quite so much um, bite anymore. There was um, there was a period just when I was going to, you know, sort of heading back to work where I, I started to feel able to kind of 
go for structured prayer time in myself after quite a long time of feeling that that was really behind a dark a dark screen. And I went up to the little attic room that we had in the house where we lived when I was curate. I got I got a couple of of, of icons, um, and I got one of them, which is an icon of Christ the Teacher, and I sort of put it up and and lit a candle and just just sat there for a while. And you know this this was really after a, after a long period of wondering whether the faith that I thought I had was really there. Actually, I mean, it was that kind of dark and hard, hard to mm. find. Mm. Um, and, you know, we sort of think, gosh, was I sort of fooling myself all, all the time? And I'd really, really want to say to sort of anybody who's, who's listening, I, I suppose, um, to, to just be aware that, that that happens to people of faith of, of every kind of type. You know, it's not, an un, it's not an experience of which we should be ashamed. But anyway, I sort of lit this candle and sat there thinking, well, you know, I wonder what the start of prayer looks like or is going to feel like. And um, one of the things in the period where, that I'd had off work was to kind of let go of some stuff, I, I, I guess. And, um, and I remember looking at this icon of, of Jesus and, and saying just the most kind of theologically ridiculous thing you could say. I mean, I've done a few sort of theology things and whatever. Um, and I looked at this icon and said, uh, I don't think I can take responsibility for you anymore. I think you're going to have to do this yourself. Uh, I mean, what what a weird thing to say to Jesus. You know, that's really odd. But of course, the the acknowledgement was that part of how I'd been living, particularly on the inside, was to genuinely try to make sure that everything was okay, including yeah. for including for God, and that somehow yeah. God's sort of okayness depended upon what what I did. And you know, um, yes, uh, got, uh, that that somehow the responsibility was was mine, um, and to to let go of that and to say, okay, you're, I'm, I'm going to kind of let you do it now. And I don't mean that everything before that had been false, because that's not true. You know, I'd been ordained for a number of years. I've been in ministry for a bit. It doesn't it, it doesn't work like that. Life of faith is is not black and white. But it was the case that there was a a, a layer of letting go that that had to happen and that happened in in i guess it being okay to say something theologically ridiculous to god you know mm. sorry god um i can't do it you know i can't keep taking responsibility for you anymore you're going to have to do it yourself it is utterly ridiculous and yet it's what i had been doing and the kind of released and the sense of it being possible to say that and that God would welcome me saying it was absolutely fundamental. So the sense back was not, oh, Tim, what a stupid thing to say. You know, it was, yes, you can say that. That's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I've been here all along. And um, it's okay because I've sort of been taking responsibility for myself anyway, even if you think I haven't been. Um, you know, so, um, but that acknowledgement that often part of what it had meant for me and part of what it means, I think, for, for many of us is a sense of such um, protectedness around our faith and the necessity to kind of defend things and keep things okay and keep things looking in a certain way so that either God's ability to work or reputation or, or whatever it is is somehow yeah. preserved. Yeah. I mean, um, I think can be, can, be very, can be very, very powerful 
particularly if we have a draw to kind of help make things okay for other people, which can be quite unhealthy at times, but also is on the flip side of it, something that's probably an ingredient in a lot of us who are in ministry. But um, but that experience of letting go um, and acknowledging that I'd been sort of trying to take responsibility for things or or perhaps make sure that things were okay in such a big way was a was a really fundamental moment. And I do think it felt like those words and that admission were kind of drawn out of me in that moment, a bit like yeah. Yeah. walking along that cliff path. Yeah. It was an involuntary, oh, how wonderful, how beautiful, how marvellous this is. Thank you. In the same way, it was an involuntary, I really can't do this for you anymore. Oh. And then you hear the ridiculousness of it back, but also the invitation and the embrace. And somehow the words of Jesus being, um, abide in me, here, here I am, um, it's okay. Um, so yeah, that was, a, that was a, really, a really crucial moment for me. Not after which everything became really simple and I felt brilliant every day but was a really important kind of pause on the way, I think. Mm. And I, I hope that I'm able to carry some of that as well as the other experiences and training in, into ministry. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. I, think what, I think what you've said there should be a real encouragement to maybe people listening to this and they're going through some dark times and, they're trying to pray and they can't hear God and everything's things are going wrong and they don't know what's going on. That there is a there's a huge tradition in the Christian faith, I think, towards wrestling towards a kind of self-awareness in God, mm. which when it's expressed can sound a bit odd, but is actually really precious. So although what as you say, what you said was perhaps theologically unsound, nevertheless. It was it was a truth in you at that moment, which having been expressed and released, that was a blessing to you. I dare to say that you you, you actually found that that was a thing that you, you were now conscious that that is what you had been doing to an extent, and it it's was helpful really, yeah. to express it. It's really important, and to to come back to that thing that we were talking about with with art and passion and not being in competition with with God mm. again. We want to be careful because um, you know there are there are amazing traditions of, of of course of you know it is not i but christ who who lives in me um, uh, um and whatever but there's also i think a really important strand in the in the christian tradition of saying a deep self-awareness and knowledge and admission of who i am is perfectly compatible with god being all of who god is in my life um, yes and absolutely we we absolutely. don't we, we we don't have to try and look away from those things to try and cover up the difficult stuff so that we can get on with the important God gospel yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, um, and and I, I, I do think, actually, that that experience has probably led to me responding pastorally in some particular ways that, that, that maybe I wouldn't have been able to had I not had it. But even that, does not mean that um, God was just using that experience for something else. Because in mm. the end, it's really curious how we can convince ourselves so much that we want to tell everybody that God loves them. And we are still not quite convinced deep down that God really loves us. 
I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things I don't get right, but I think I'm closer to that. I think I'm closer to that now. That mm. because mm. God's love for me and for you and for anybody else is entirely independent of what we do or what we think about it. Absolutely. There's yeah. absolutely nothing yeah. we can do about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And um and so it's it's entirely unconditional. But we still often don't let that trickle down. You know, like unconditional actually means what it says. Mm. Um mm. That, and so the the fundamental strand for me in any kind of pastoral, but also playing is um, whoever I'm playing to, whoever I'm sitting with, whoever I'm praying with or giving communion to or whatever, I'm looking into the eyes of somebody who is held in an unblinking gaze of love. Um, and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And that's the most fundamental thing about them. There's nothing mm. more important about them. There's nothing that can kind of overlay that. There's no strata that can mean their lovedness is kind of buried beneath and needs to be uncovered. It's, it's always the most important thing about them. Mm. Um, mm. And that's, and that's because it's God who's loving them who, um, and in the end, God is God and sort of to wrap up Christian eschatology in like one sentence, God is God. And in the end, that's sort of all that matters. But that means that because God is God and that's all that matters, we matter more than we can ever think. Mm. It, this reminds me of, there's, there's been a moment in my life where I was involved in a ministry of, of some kind. And I said, I, I, and my expectations of God in that ministry were not met. And I was disappointed by God's performance, which is an equally ridiculous thing to say. So I think we all say profound truths in a ridiculous way. And we do. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yes. It's, uh, but actually, I think they're really, I think God is gracious and patient in those things. And actually, they need to be said for our own sake. You know, yeah. We might think we're putting they God do. right, but actually we, we're just saying things for, for yes. we're saying things which we need to hear. And yeah. I believe that God said to me something which is equally applicable to everyone, which is he said, that's fine. You can lay down that ministry because I love you more than I love your ministry. Yes. That and reminds that, me of for me has yeah. always been the heart of, I think what you were saying there about love being the fundamental thing. And that's the, yes. that's one of the, the key messages I'd want people to hear. Yeah. as they struggle with faith and as they struggle in life, is that God loves each of us more than he loves our ministry. Much as that is a wonderful thing, much as ministry is great and doing it is great, it's his love for us that is preeminent. Yes. And so the one of the challenges for, for us then is to ask what it means for us to live as a community who believe that about one another and about ourselves. Mm, because that's when, it's, when it's really hard to believe that we're praying to a loving God, Sometimes it can be the faith of somebody else alongside us who acts as if we are unconditionally loved that enables us to sort of stay in that community of faith, even though we might not be connecting with it mm. ourselves. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's, this is an incredibly corporate thing. We have, I mean, gosh, in so many ways, we live in such an unconnected individualistic age. And so, um, the you know, the, this isn't this isn't a conversation about evangelism so much as what would life look like if we were convinced that everybody we walked past was held in a gaze of love, including the people mm. who say things we hate on Facebook or whatever, mm. you know, um, mm. uh, and, um, and, and how, how do we, how do we nurture communities that look like that's what we believe about each other? Um, yeah. And that is, you know, those kind of visionary things are, 
that's that's the groundwork for corporate Christian living. And even though that phrase is too small to encompass it, I think. It is. And I like to think that the arts help us a bit. Yes. Because yes, they, they um, you know, amongst other things, when you create, like creating stump, something is, I think, almost universally a hopeful kind of thing because you're saying, oh, I think something is worth saying or worth mm. playing or worth expressing mm. or worth painting or worth mm. acting mm. Um, or, or whatever. Mm. And if we think things are worthwhile, then that's fundamentally hopeful. Fantastic. Really. <laughs> Um, I think that's yeah. a good moment for us to to draw to a close. But before we right. do, if people have, have heard little, little bits of your music and if people want to find out more about um, your music and you and what you're about, Tim, how would they do that? Well, timboniface.co.uk is my website. That's probably the best place to go um, if they wanted to do something as um, beautiful as buy a CD. You know, those are those are available on there um there's a uh, uh a, there's some stuff up on youtube have a there's girton college's website of course where a lot of our services are there's um our, our broadcast and things if they live in surrey come to ashdead jazz club i play there quite regularly or various other places we do stuff mm-hmm. um yeah but the website's probably the best best place to start timbonface.co.uk and you can get in touch if you want to and that's that's T I M for Tim and then B O N I F A C E dot That's right. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Tim, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real it's pleasure great to, to talk, talk to you and listen to your it. music today. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on all of the major podcast distributors and also follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www.christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world. You can also contact us by email at thetestimonycast.com at gmail.com that's the testimony cast at gmail.com i look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon until then thank you for listening and god bless you <laughs>